Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Professor James Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman is a professor of educational psychology at the University of Connecticut and one of the world's leading experts on the study of creativity. I'm definitely not going to do full justice to his resume here, but just to say a few words, he's the author or editor of more than 35 books, that's a lot, including Creativity 101 and the Cambridge Handbook of Creativity, and he's also published upwards of 250 papers, including the study that spawned the well-known Sylvia Plath effect, which we talk about in the podcast. And he's also the promulgator of three well-known theories of creativity, including the so-called 4C model of creativity, which we also discuss. In the podcast, Dr. Kaufman and I talk about many different things related to creativity that he has done work on. I'm going to include a link to Professor Kaufman's Wikipedia page and also his Yukon page if you want to learn more about his work or read some of his work. So without further preamble, I give you Dr. James Kaufman. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. So yeah, thanks for doing this. I thought we could start by just a little personal history. How did you get into the study of creativity? What drew you to try to do research on that or to want to do research on that? So I grew up the child of IQ test developers. So I grew up in a very strange world where intelligence, assessment, that was ordinary things to be thought about and conceived and went to a lot of conferences as a kid and never thought I would really go into it but was aware of it and interested. When I went to college, I wanted to be a writer. So I majored in creative writing, and I majored—I double majored in psychology as a backup plan. And I got really lucky where the person who was my mentor in psychology was this guy named John Horn, who was a big-time intelligence theorist and was absolutely brilliant and mentored me even though he knew that I wasn't planning on becoming a psychologist. I sent away for MFA brochures in creative writing. And one of them said, every year we graduate 20 people with MFAs. And every year there are a total of 30 jobs in the entire country. Wow. If you can do anything else but this, then do that thing. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I can do something else. The only other thing I was at all qualified to do is psychology. So I began applying haphazardly to psych PhD programs. And I got very lucky and got into a cognitive psych program at Yale working with Bob Sternberg, who's um, another absolutely brilliant, amazing scholar. And my first two years, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I gravitated towards intelligence because that was the only thing I knew, but I wasn't very good at it. Um, and after my second year, I finally thought, well, I like creative writing and Bob studies creativity. Maybe I should read up on this. And I spent a summer trapped in my parents' basement reading everything I could find on creativity. And it was the first thing I ever was interested in that was anything academic. 
Yeah, so I want to get to uh, the relationship between creativity and intelligence. You have a chapter about that in your book. Um, I guess before we get there, how long has creativity been a serious topic of academic research for? Usually it's traced to about 1950 when the president of the American Psychological Association gave his speech about why aren't we studying creativity. Joy Guilford? Yes. Looking at my notes here. <laughs> I haven't memorized all this for the podcast uh, listener. He, and there had been stuff before that. It's not like it sprang up out of nowhere. I mean, there have been publications in the teens and 20s on creativity, but they were scattered and some of them were kind of embarrassing. After 1950, Guilford began publishing a bit about creativity. He would other people really start, and it began growing, and it, it's kept growing, where you had a big boost in the 70s, and then when I was finishing up graduate school and becoming a, a young professional, there was another renaissance of just a lot of folks interested in creativity, and we're kind of seeing another renaissance now with an amazing amount of graduate students and very early career professionals who are doing amazing work. Okay. So how is creativity, well, I guess, so in the beginning of your book, you just kind of give a basic definition of creativity, which I think derives from Simonton, that's the last name of the researcher, and he says that he defines creativity along two dimensions. It must represent something new, and it must be task appropriateness. So creativity equals originality times appropriateness. Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of expand upon that definition. Of course. It's, all, it's important to know that these ideas go back even before Simonton. He, I mean, he did a beautiful synthesis of this, but um, Guilford was saying this in the 50s. People have generally been agreeing with this core concept. People always assume that being creative means being new. I mean, that, that, that's the easy one, where if you're creative, it means you're doing something different or new, original. The task-appropriate part is less instinctual. Yeah. People will often assume that being creative can mean being chaotic or being random or being saying whatever comes into your mind or acting in provocative and daring ways just intending to provoke people. And theoretically, maybe... But creativity usually has a reason for existing, and the reason can be to entertain. But a lot depends on how you're being creative. If you're being creative by building something and it falls over, it's not creative. If you're being creative in that you're developing a product that is supposed to do something, it has to do that thing. If you're doing... If you're being creative in a, in a looser domain or something you know, more artistic where there's a much larger scope, it's a wider boundary, but you still have task appropriateness in that if you're trying to write a story and you want to have a narrative in it, there has to be a basic narrative. Mm -hmm. If you're doing experimental fiction, then maybe all bets are off. But you still have to abide by the very general rules of the domain. It doesn't mean being rigid. It doesn't mean doing what's been done before. But 
if you are in the domain of visual art, there should be something to look at, usually. Um, so how do you square the task appropriateness condition with the idea that creativity requires divergent thinking? And this is all from your book. So one really funny example from the book was sometimes creativity seems to precisely require inappropriateness or it involves inappropriateness. So for example, someone asks a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the child says a tuna fish sandwich. That's arguably not task appropriate to the question, but it's still creative because it does illustrate divergent thinking. Some of it is that divergent thinking is part of creativity, but it's not synonymous. So divergent thinking is kind of married to the idea of convergent thinking, where divergent thinking means that you're thinking of as many ideas as you can. It's like brainstorming. You're generating ideas. And some of those ideas may not really be task appropriate, or they may be broadly task appropriate, but not something you could actually implement. So maybe you're trying to think of how do I save money? And, you know, you could have a task appropriate, but not terribly new solution, like, well, I will spend less money. You could say, well, I'm going to donate a kidney a week. You can't really do that. You can do that for one week. Um, is it task appropriate? I mean, it's theoretically a way of saving money or making money, but it's not really something you can implement. Right. So when you're thinking divergently, you want to get all the ideas out there. But just as important as figuring out what ideas you want to follow up on. Mm -hmm. So... It's incredibly important to be able to think divergently, to be able to come up with different solutions and not be trapped in a rigid way of looking at things. But if you keep picking the wrong ideas, you're going to keep failing. Right. It also helps figuring out whether it's a time to be creative or not. I mean, if you have a hole in your wall, if you own Spackle, you use Spackle. You don't particularly need to be creative about it. If you have a hole in your wall and you're moving out the next day and you have no Spackle, that's when making paper mache or doing something that you are creating out of the things you have at hand, it is a good thing to be creative and that will be helpful. Right, okay. And yeah, so that kind of brings up the idea, right, it's not just about originality, it's about other things as well. And in your book, you talk about how sometimes replication can even involve creativity, like scientific replication. And you mentioned how a lot of people commonly associate creativity with the arts, but how science is intrinsically creative in a lot of ways as well, even though people don't intuitively conceptualize science along those lines. Absolutely. There are so many, not just domains of creativity, but also ways of being creative. So even within science, it's more obvious to think of being creative as you discover something brand new. Right. But just like a spark of creativity that just comes to consciousness. Yes. You have this brand new theorem. You have this brand new study. You know, right. that, okay, yeah, we, we get that's creative. But... There's a ton of different articles published, and a lot of them make real contributions. 
I mean, there's just been this huge replication crisis in psychology and other areas yeah. where there have been these exciting studies that were done back in the 1950s or 60s, but nobody really made sure they held up. And so these things that have been taught in Intro to Psych as being true, in some cases, not all by any means, but in some cases when they try to replicate it and see, well, okay, does it work? They find, no, this we don't find this at all. Is this specific to a particular area of psychology, the replication crisis, or is it more prominent in a particular area? Um, it's, it started a lot in social psychology. Um, part of it is that social psychology comes up with an awful lot of really sexy ideas. I mean, you know, that Milgram's obedience to authority, you know, the Stanford prison experiment, all this, all the really cool stuff comes from social psychology. And sometimes things that sound too good to be true can be too good to be true. And it doesn't mean that somebody is intentionally at fault. I mean, sometimes it's because somebody made up data, but usually it's just because people made mistakes or they had too small of a sample size. And, you know, deciding what would be a good study to replicate, making sure you replicate it so you're true to the spirit of the experiment, but you also, maybe you have more people, maybe you test a wider variety of people. It may be a smaller level of creativity, but it's absolutely creative. Right. Oh, well, okay, that brings up another question I want to ask. Um, is creativity a unique trait or is it kind of the sum total of a bunch of different traits? So I'm very interested in artificial intelligence, and this is a debate in the AI community. You know, we want to create general artificial intelligence entities that are able to f think flexibly across various different domains. Right now, we have a lot of domain-specific artificial intelligence systems, systems that are able to be uh, really good at math, they're able to be really good at chess. And you can ask the question, okay, is AGI, artificial general intelligence, is that some distinct phenomenon, or is it just kind of the sum total of a bunch of domain-specific intelligences? Once you get enough of those, AGI just kind of arises. And as I think you indicate in your book, you can ask a similar, similar question about creativity. Is it kind of one trait, or is it the combination of a bunch of different things? A lot of it depends on the two very broad philosophies are domain general and domain specific. Hmm. And this you also find in intelligence. Some people think that intelligence is this one thing, kind of like um, it's usually called G for general intelligence. And often when you test somebody's intelligence, you might give them some vocabulary, maybe a logic puzzle or rebus puzzle, um, something where they complete a picture, you might give them a whole bunch of little tests. If somebody believes that intelligence is general, then you don't, they would argue you don't really need to do that. That you just need a couple of them and they'll all correlate a certain amount and that's intelligence. Mm -hmm. People who see intelligence as being more task specific or ability specific would argue that there's actually a great deal of difference between dealing with a new stimulus versus something that you've already learned, versus visual spatial abilities, versus memory, that these are all distinct things and somebody may be high on something, lower on something. Mm -hmm. With creativity, there's a lot depends by what you mean by domain. So there's so many levels. So 
for example, there's the arts. But then under the arts, you could argue, okay, well, there's visual art, verbal art, performance. You could probably make a few more. Well, under verbal art, okay, well, you have prose, poetry, nonfiction, and then, okay, well, under prose, you have a novel, a short story, and so on. Um, and it's rare to have studies that look at many different smaller domains. Maybe you'll get a study that looks at three or four, but not a very large study. But the idea is that different abilities or traits go into being successful in different domains. So that, for example, if you're creative in science, you will likely have more acquired knowledge. You'll, pro you'll likely have better problem-solving ability. Um, you'll probably be very conscientious. If you're creative in dance, you likely will have very, very good bodily control, bodily kinesthetic ability. Mm. You will likely, most likely, be more extroverted. So it's kind of like there's there's no formula for being creative, but there's certainly things that are associated with creativity. Some of them are generally associated. So being open to new ideas or experiences, that's pretty helpful no matter what. And these, so the, what you're t talking about right now, this is like the five factors of personalities, because that's yes. another question I want to ask. What is the relationship between creativity and personality? Is there a particular kind of personality that's more disposed to be creative? And, and this, actually, this actually pairs well with this idea of domains, because the, the, the five factors of personality traditionally is openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and what used to be called neuroticism is now called emotional stability, because it sounds less mean. Yeah. Um, no, I definitely had a negative association when I read that. I'm like, neuroticism? Yeah, no, and, and it also means that you have four that are positively skewed and one that's negatively. Openness to experience, that's generally associated with creativity in almost every domain. I mean, not always in every person or anything, but generally speaking, if you're willing to try new things, if, if you are willing to entertain new ideas and it, it would be interesting to you to go to new places, you're more likely to be creative in pretty much whatever you do. More recent work has split openness to experience into kind of two factors, um, like sub-factors, where one of them is being open, well, to experience it. Experience, and the other is more open to intellect. So open to experience means, you know, you want to try new food and travel to a new place and go bungee jumping or something. Openness to intellect means that you like debating, you like challenging puzzles. You would be interested in talking to somebody who disagrees with you, not just to yell at them, but to actually see, can you change my mind or can I change your mind? Okay. Openness to intellect is a more correlated with more science-y creativity. Openness to experience is more correlated with artistic-y, artistic creativity. That makes sense. How does, um, 
Actually, you, were you going to keep going? Sorry. Uh, um, I got so many questions. I don't want to just like bombard you. Oh, no, no. Um, conscientiousness is what's fascinating. Because if you're talking business or science, then that's positively associated with creativity. If you're talking the arts, it's sometimes negatively associated. So how would you define conscientiousness? So conscientiousness is both being orderly, neat, organized um, type of person who would have a day planner. Um, I think in the book you say conscientious is a very conscientious person is someone who enjoys doing their taxes, something like that. Yes. And actually that was um, um, when I was working at Educational Testing Service, um, the late Walter uh, Walter Emmerich, who is a senior scholar there, was a person who explained the big five for the first time in a way I really understood. And he gave me a lot of these just beautiful examples. Hmm. Um, conscientiousness also have a, has a certain achievement aspect. So people who would hand their homework in early and never miss an assignment. Yes, you need to be organized, but it's also then going ahead and doing that thing. You know, so you're working hard, you're plugging along. It's kind of both of those things. Um, so how could it? How is it negatively associated with creativity? I guess I can kind of intuitively guess as to how it is. The conscientious person is going to be maybe too structured in their life, and that prevents them from trying new things or engaging in divergent ways of thinking because they're so detail-oriented? Is it something along those lines or no? Um, similar, you know, in that it's not necessarily interacting with openness because the personality factors tend to not terribly interact. They've been designed so they're different things. Interesting. But it would interact with a lot of the other stuff. So somebody who is incredibly conscientious, maybe they are a little more rigid. And people who are more rigid, maybe they're therefore not willing to generate as many ideas. They want to stick to what they know. Right. Um, being organized is great, but somebody who's hyper-organized doesn't like mess. They don't like ambiguity. And these are things that can be associated with creativity. Most of conscientiousness, when you're talking science or business, you need it too much. If you're a scientist... In order to be creative, you have to finish the experiment. You have to not get your samples contaminated. You need to be conscientious. Artists, on one hand, there's a lot of conscientiousness that they also need. I mean, they still need to finish what they're doing. They still very often will have routines. And it's not that artists by their nature are not going to be conscientious but that it doesn't necessarily help them and aspects of it could even hurt them a little bit so i got maybe a related piece here which you also talk about in your book are there particular kinds of environments that are more likely to facilitate creativity like a very neat environment, for example, as opposed to a very messy environment, there are a bunch of stereotypes circulating around this area, or does it just depend on the person, what they're trying to be creative in, etc.? A lot of this stuff on physical environments is really, well, messy. Um, 
the stuff that makes the news because it's interesting. Oh, the color green or blue makes you more creative or a messy desk <laughs> or having a house plant or going running before. Speaking of which, I want to talk about um, the study that you did on female poets oh, and boy. how that went kind of oh, yes. got into the mainstream media. But we can put that on hold for a sec. But yes, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> um, most of the physical environment studies don't really hold up. So either you look at it and you realize that what's being claimed by the media isn't what the study says. So there have been a couple of studies that, oh, if you exercise or lift weights or go for a walk, then you'll be more creative. That's only true of people who already exercise or lift weights or like going for walks. Mm. If somebody doesn't like exercising, they'll be less creative. Mm-hmm. Which then becomes, well, if you're doing something you like, then you'll be more creative. And yes, that's probably true, but that's not quite as earth-shattering. Right. Um, to a degree, instructions matter. A lot of times people need permission to be creative. And if you give them a task and say, you know, go ahead and be creative, they often will be more creative. Uh, in terms of a larger environment, a lot of it is about psychological safety and the value structure of an organization. Mm. Most organizations, schools, say they want creativity. Sometimes their behavior reflects that, sometimes it doesn't. So if an organization says it wants creativity but then doesn't give resources or time for creative work, or it punishes ideas that fail, you're not going to get creativity. You need a Because you need failure. You need failure. In order. You, you need to feel like you can try something without it ending your career. Right. I mean, a good leader will both encourage it, but also model it. Because if your boss is out there taking risks, then you're more likely to. Right. They should be risks that make sense. But... If there's this feeling of you have to do exactly what is expected and find the cheapest way of doing it, then you're probably not going to spur a whole bunch of creativity. Right. It's the same way in schools. Do schools inherently kill creativity? I mean, some do, but certainly not all. I think that that's a, it's a large sweeping statement to make that I think is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times... It depends on the level and that an awful lot of teachers desperately want to have more creative students. Yeah. They're incredibly limited, whether it's by the principal or the superintendent or the standards of the state where the students have to do all these standardized assessments. That's what I was going to say, because that's part of the problem with the incentive structures, right? Like the SAT only measures particular kinds of intelligences. It doesn't necessarily measure creativity and that's a whole nother question how do you measure creativity which we can also get into but there there is an argument here if i understand correctly where some people think that creativity should play a more prominent role in the admissions process for example some unfortunately few (laughs) um but a lot of this stuff um is bob sternberg who's an amazing work on this um some of the reasons to include creativity in missions. I mean, one of the biggest ones, if you look 
at the SATs, the ACTs, AP exams, the GREs, almost any test like that, you find differences by ethnicity. That's true in IQ tests also. There are a thousand reasons for this. People debate and fight over this. Um, but certainly there are many explanations that are rooted in socioeconomic status and systematic um, lack of resources and opportunities. If you look at creativity, there are no differences. So if you include a, cre you know, not to replace, because that's not going to happen, but if you add a creativity measure. Between different ethnicities, there are no differences? Correct. Okay. Um, everybody's the same potential to be creative, which is kind of amazing. Wow. Okay, so it's not a, it's really a nurture and not a nature trait, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of nature in that not everybody is going to have what it takes to be a creative genius, but everybody, almost everybody has what it takes to be creative, at least on an everyday level, and there is no connection to the ways that we tend to categorize people. Okay, well, yeah, so could you elaborate a bit more on that? Because this is another distinction you make in the book between genius-level creativity and everyday creativity. One question I had about that was, is this kind of a categorical distinction? Are these two different kinds of creativity, or is it a spectrum where genius is on one end, every day is on the other? So we actually, me and Ron Baghetto, um developed the 4C model, which is kind of a riff on this, where we see it as this kind of developmental trajectory where the first thing would actually be what we call mini-C, or personal creativity. And that can be an idea that you have and you never express to somebody. It can be something that is new to you, but it turns out some, many people have thought of before. But as you keep getting those ideas, you keep exploring and then sharing and getting feedback, that's when you can get to little c or everyday creativity. And that's creativity that other people recognize as being creative. Um, I like calling it county fair creativity because county fairs are full, you know, full of people wearing fun costumes and selling homemade bird feeders or fried dough and just all sorts of fun little things that other people enjoy. And... Um, I, mean, I believe that almost anybody can reach little c. Hmm. In between little and big c, we place pro c, um, or expert level creativity. And that's when you start really kind of making a contribution to a field. So let's say that you're a writer. You know, mini c is just having an idea for a story. Little c is, you know you're reading your work out loud at a coffee shop and, and people like it. Proceed would be you start getting things published. Doesn't mean they're bestsellers, but just, you know, you start to get some stories and poems published in magazines and it's being, you know, you, maybe you have your first novel published. Big C, your creative genius, the way that I see it, that comes with time. It usually comes after somebody dies before we can really tell. 
because time and history are weird things. And there are people who, when they died, everybody assumed they'd be remembered, and now nobody knows who they are. Right. That's much more common than the reverse, which is somebody dies and they're not very well known, and then they become famous later. That's very, very rare. Um, Happens, but is rare. So there are people right now who I think you make a pretty good case are a really good chance of being big C. I mean, Paul McCartney, I mean, the Beatles have been around or have you know, were around, we're talking 70, almost 70 years ago, I think, 50s, maybe 60. Um, I would be surprised if Paul McCartney is forgotten 100 years from now. So in order to have... Yeah, yeah, he's definitely not going to be able. In order to have big C creativity, your work needs to be recognized by the so-called gatekeepers in whatever domain that you're trying to be contributing to. It reminds me to one of the theories of creativity that you outline called the systems model of creativity, yes. right? Which says that creativity is an interaction between the domain, the field, and the person. The field is defined as the gatekeepers. So this seems to entail that what counts as creative depends upon the gatekeeper's approval. And that seems like that's what you were saying when you were just articulating the big C model of creativity. Um, right, so is I would argue it starts at Pro C, though, because okay. the gatekeepers are also the people who publish the books and who edit the journals and who give out the grants. So if you're at a stage in your career where you're submitting journals, you're submitting articles to journals, you're submitting to give talks at conferences. There are gatekeepers there who will either reject you or accept you. There are people who will give you funding or not give you funding. Um, and so you can be very squarely at the beginning of Pro C and still have gatekeepers determine how high up you can go or your limit. I mean, obviously, some of it is do you keep trying and plugging away and gatekeepers aren't always right. They often aren't right. But that that concept of that being a really important part um, to me comes even before Big C. Okay. Because I was going to say, because it is possible, right, to have a creative genius who's just ahead of his time, who whose work isn't recognized by the gatekeepers during their time. But then, as you say, hundreds of years later they become really famous. So would that mean that they're not creative now, but they're creative then? Or could you say that, no, they've always been creative, we just didn't recognize it. That seems like the more intuitive interpretation of such a situation. And that I would agree with. I think it's rare. I think if you if you look at most people from over 100 years ago who are remembered today, comparatively very few were unknown during their time. There, there were some, absolutely. You know, Franz Kafka is often cited, and yes, that's happening. John Kennedy Toole um, killed himself in his 30s, was published posthumously, and won the Pulitzer Prize for a Confederacy of Dunces. It absolutely exists. I think Emily Dickinson, too, but she didn't, like, release any of her poems. She published four poems in her lifetime, although some of that was also an interaction with both opportunities and what was expected of women back then. Um, I think um, she's a harder case in that I think she was recognized a little bit. It was just society was 
much worse. Right. So, so yeah, okay. The um, problem was with the gatekeepers in that, in that scenario. And that the and that the crowd, the people in the who consume poetry, didn't even get a chance, right, to read most of her stuff. Um, so absolutely, you you can have some people where the gatekeepers and the domain, you know, incorrectly evaluate. But it's also a little, it's always been a little astounding to me that many of the people who are in our canon, you know, Mark Twain, Charles Dickens, they were rock stars in their time. Mm. That Charles Dickens, who, you know, at least if you're my age, you grew up reading Great Expectations in, grade, in elementary school and thinking, why am I reading this? But when he wrote it, it was, it was Stephen King, it was J.K. Rawlings, it was people waiting to find out what happened next. He was as popular as you can imagine. Hmm. Um, we can't always predict, I mean, the things that seem elite at a certain point doesn't mean they'll keep being elite. A lot of the popular stuff becomes elite over time. I mean, in the 50s, uh, if you look at musical theater, you have Rodgers and Hammerstein and you have Harold Rome. Harold Rome wrote really intellectual, thoughtful musicals. And they're still done occasionally. Most people have no idea who he is. Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote you know, brilliant musicals, but people loved them. They were very popular. It was a type of thing where people who were really elitist would probably look down a little bit on them. And yet, it's Rodgers and Hammerstein whose work has survived all these years later, much less so Harold Rome. I mean, in his time, Robert Frost was considered to be schmaltzy and sentimental. And really? Not, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, I mean, people would have picked Gerald Manley, Hop Hop yeah, Gerald Manley Hopkins as the one who would be remembered. And again, Hopkins is still read and remembered, not at the level Robert Frost is. So at a philosophical level... Or I guess just at a general level, would you say that there is such thing as objective creativity? You know, people ask this question all the time with respect to beauty or aesthetics and philosophy. Is beauty just in the eye of the beholder? Would you say that So you, there is some objective creativity independent of how society receives it at a given time? Because there are those outlier cases where we want to say it's objectively created even though no one recognizes it to be at the time? Or is that just I think the a misinformed are, question? No, I think the keywords are at a given time. In that, I think if you're talking about something that was made in the 1600s and it wasn't considered creative then and it wasn't considered creative in the 1800s and it's not considered creative now, maybe it'll be discovered to be creative in 2200, but probably not. Mm-hmm. If you're talking something that wasn't appreciated during the creator's lifetime, but then people realize, no, wait, this has value and was appreciated, then yes, I would argue that even if it wasn't recognized as being creative, it would be recognized. And there are all sorts of people, or perhaps it was recognized by a very small percentage. I mean, the comedian Andy Kaufman, when he was active... I just discovered him recently. I'm watching his YouTube videos. Oh, he's fantastic. And, he's awesome. <laughs> and now it's like, yeah, he's funny, and this is what's comedy. Back then, it was, who is this person? This isn't comedy. He's playing a record and singing along, or he's, you know, making loud, obnoxious proclamations, or he's 
reading the great Gatsby all night. I mean, I feel like some part of his genius to me is that you don't know whether he's acting or not. You're like, is this just a crazy person who we're filming or is this an act? Like, what's going on here? And that, I mean, now that's, I wouldn't say commonplace, but much more common where, you know, if you have a superstar actor who does something truly bizarre, well, is that is this for a role? Is this all a, like when Joaquin Phoenix? I just watched that recently oh, on God. Letterman. Oh, because I was going down the Andy Kaufman rabbit hole on YouTube when I got to that video. <laughs> but when that happened, you had a good number of people who were thinking, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, he's this is all an act." An act. But Letterman didn't know, right? No. And when because when Andy Kaufman did it, Pete, nobody was doing it. Yeah. The idea that somebody would basically sabotage their career for a joke, for, for the payoff. I mean, people didn't get that. It just seems so bizarre. Um, and in Kaufman's case, in some ways his biggest legacy is who he influenced. Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, Pee Wee Herman, all these people clearly, you know, and have credited Kaufman as an inspiration. I mean, there's a group called the Velvet Underground, and the running joke is that their first album sold 500 copies, and everybody who bought one started a rock group. Because mm. they're always cited as an influence, but when their first album came out, nobody bought it. Interesting. There's a really good uh, Netflix documentary I watched recently about Jim Carrey, who played Kaufman in a movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but I've read about it. Yeah, it was. It's really good. So let's, um, if we could, I just want to. We're just talking about female poets. Let's circle back to the study that you sure. did on female poets. So just to set this up, and correct me if I get anything wrong here. Um, so this study takes place within the context of exploring the relationship between creativity and mental illness so you can ask are creative people more likely to be mentally ill and i feel like there is a stereotype circulating in the public imagination which suggests that that's the case and there are famous examples like van gogh cutting off his ear or whatnot just creative geniuses who and then you also cite some literature about a potential connection between a bipolar disorder and creativity and then you note that a lot of people cite your work to support the claim that creative people are more likely to be mentally ill. And there's one particular study that you did where you explain the correlates between mental illness and eminent poets. And so apparently the mainstream media picked this up, and this is a case where the mainstream media kind of distorted or misunderstood your findings and kind of ran away with it. Um, so. Yeah, I guess, what was the study that you did on female poets and how did the mainstream media misrepresent it? It started, when, it started when I was in grad school. I was looking for a project to do and I didn't have any funds to test people. And I just discovered Dean Keith Simonton's work, which is called historiometric, where you go back and then you look at biographies or encyclopedia entries or any reference point about creative geniuses of days gone by, and you enter different bits of information to find something new, hopefully. And I had found this book at the Strand bookstore, like a guide to writers, and it was 
almost 2,000 writers, and I had like a nice little bio of them and, you know, gave information about their lives and their work, different awards they'd won, and I picked it up, and then I just began entering data on anything I could get from it. And I worked on it for a very long time. And when I began looking at the data, one of the variables was mental illness, which I'd coded based on were there signs and specific um, where if somebody, for example, committed suicide or, or was institutionalized, like that was a two. If there were signs, they were described as being depressed or anxious, but with no concrete evidence, it was a one, and otherwise it was a zero. Mm. There are many problems with that in retrospect, but what I found was that if you look at the writers, both type of writer and gender, so is fiction writers, poets, playwrights, and nonfiction writers, and then male and female for each group, mm. that female poets were by far the most likely to show signs of mental illness. Hmm. Um, and you could have framed it the exact opposite way because male nonfiction writers were the lowest and least likely to show mental illness. Um, I wrote it up. Um, I did a, because I first did a second follow-up study as part of the article where I looked at eminent women. Um, poets, novelists, visual artists, actors, ac um, actresses, business women, and politicians. Not just writers. Right. And again, and just women in this case. And again, same pattern of poets being very high and the other ones being lower. Hmm. At no point did I ever argue that creativity and mental illness were linked. It was just within eminent writers, female poets are more likely to to suffer from mental illness. The study came out in 2001 or so, and about four years later, my university, not UConn, the one before it, hired a publicist just to get professors' work out in the news, and they met with me, and they were fascinated by this, and so they wrote up a press release. And I remember... It was one day that apparently got out there, and I got a call from the New York Times wanting to interview me and gave an interview. While I was talking to them, call waiting beeped in. It was the L.A. Times wanting to interview me. And then it's on, like, the top front page of CNN. And, I mean, it was early career. I didn't know what I was doing. Um... It was a little fun, then it was a little mortifying. Yeah, I was going to say, what was it like just kind of blowing up into the mainstream really quickly, right? I made the mistake of reading the comments. Yeah. Never read that. the comments. <laughs> um, never read the comments. Um, and I mean, you know, the obvious ones of, you know, who paid for this research? Nobody. It wasn't funded. Or, you know... Um, we always knew this, or poets are crazy, or his photo looks really creepy, you know, stuff like that. Like, okay. Um, what was interesting 
Yeah, so what was the main headline of the CNN article? Um, the original ones were usually relatively accurate and mostly playing in the poetry aspect. So, you know, for a longer life, write pr- prose. Poetry will kill you. One, make you depressed. One English newspaper had a haiku title, you know, that was basically like, you know, oh, if yeah. you, something like if you are reading, you know, if, if you are the one who is writing this verse, you are more likely to go crazy. It was like, it was, some of it was very clever. And it, I didn't help by being young, stupid, and happy to talk to the press um, and not being careful. Um, as time passed, it just got diluted to be creativity, mental illness, or associated. Right. And that you, you were... So you're comparing different writers who are already assumed to be creative, and you're saying out of these different writers, non-fictionalists, people who write poetry, and then you're separating them along gender, who is more likely to be mentally ill? So you're already saying they're... You're already assuming that they're creative. And I'm not comparing them to uncreative people. Yeah, and you're not comparing... Yeah, right. I mean, the irony is that it's not that I think necessarily the effect is wrong, but that is boring. Right. It's a small little thing that... I mean, I stand by. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Maybe it is. But it's incredibly minor. It's incredibly who cares. I mean, if it was every day, that's one thing. But it doesn't extrapolate down. It doesn't mean that female poets who are writing poetry in their spare time, it says nothing about that whatsoever. There's no application of that. Um, But it had a nice... It had a sexy title, the Sylvia Plath effect. Um, so this, like, I've had this stereotype. This has been in my mind that mental illness and creativity are linked. So this comes from you. Like, you're responsible for this stereotype. I wasn't first. Um, in terms of the broader thing, there were three big studies that came before Two of the three were violently bad, terrible, to the point where I'm not going to name them. The third one was better, but still flawed in a thousand ways. Um, I'm not saying they were any more flawed than I was, but they made grander claims. Mm -hmm. You know, so they would select people to analyze and then compare to the population rate. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. Um, for one thing, if you went through anybody's life with a fine-tooth comb, you will find something either stupid or crazy or whatever they've done. Of course. And so when you're going over that with, okay, well, this time it's painters or whatever, you're going to find some things they've done that are a little nutty. It doesn't mean that they're crazy. If you then figure, okay, well, who gets written up? People who had more interesting lives. What makes better stories? I mean, you mentioned Van Gogh earlier. <laughs> There's a lot of debate about, well, first, whether he actually cut off his ear. Oh, really? Yeah. It, it was at a very odd angle, and there is, I think this was Gauguin, I could be wrong, but he was friends with a other painter who was kind of violently jealous. Mm. And 
Van Gogh's the type of person who would have lied and said he did it to make sure his friend didn't get arrested. The same thing with his death. If he killed himself, it means that he shot himself in the stomach, which is a very weird way to kill yourself. Yeah. Maybe he did. I don't know. Nobody, you know, we weren't there. But there's also a very strong possibility that it was an accident or somebody else did it. And again, he did not, either he didn't want them to get into trouble or he was in too much pain to bother articulating. We don't know. It's crazy how these things just get popularized in the public imagination and then at, at some point they just become fact. Like everyone just, Van Gogh cut off his ear. You know, like I didn't know any of those details about controversy surrounding it and ambiguity and all that. One of the first biographies of Edgar Allan Poe was written by his, literally, by his worst enemy. <laughs> yeah, no, this is definitely unbiased. And it's like, <clears throat> we are now so skeptical of current things, but we don't use that skepticism going backwards. Mm-hmm. We just kind of accept the fables that have been handed down to us. And even if you were to ask somebody, like, did George Washington really cut down the cherry tree? Most people, yeah, probably not. But our image of him is still affected as this strong, noble, I mean, or if you ask me, what do you think Abraham Lincoln's voice sounded like? Most people will say, you know, it was probably deep and resonant. He had a high-pitched high squeaky voice. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So even, this, even if we are skeptical enough to recognize what's an urban legend, if we really think about it, Usually we don't. Hmm. Um, okay, I have. So I'm mindful of the time now. I have a couple more questions. Yeah, no, sure. That's okay. Sure. Um, so just circling back to the relationship between creativity and intelligence. Um, <laughs> well, I guess one question is: Is artificial intelligence system capable of creativity? You know. So I know <clears throat> there's a lot of talk in the AI community just about how. AI systems are going to um, replace jobs. It's going to lead to this mass employment. Truck drivers might be some of the first people, maybe. And I'm wondering, down the line, when we create AI systems that are able to pass the Turing test, are we going to have AI AIs that are able to create art, that are AIs as stand-up comedians, you know, or, or academics? And, yeah, so I guess particularly I was wondering if you could expand upon theories of intelligence which feature creativity. And the one that you discuss in the book is Sternberg's theory of successful intelligence, which postulates that there are three kinds of intelligences. There's analytic, which is kind of like book smarts, maybe practical, street smarts, and then creative. So creativity is under that model conceptualized as a kind of intelligence. So it's not a distinct thing. Although in his model, analytic intelligence is what most people just call intelligence. Okay. So, for example, if you look at many other theories of intelligence, the ones that IQ tests are based on, most of them wouldn't have creativity or practical intelligence in there. It would all be some variant of analytic. Okay, so when people talk about artificial intelligence then, when they use intelligence in that case, are they referring to analytic Probably, although I would argue artificial intelligence is its own thing at this point. Okay. In that it's it's 
people who study artificial intelligence and people who study human intelligence tend to not overlap a whole lot. The same way people who study animal intelligence tend to not be the same people who study human intelligence or artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. so they're working with different definitions because they're working in different fields, studying different, different things. Different definitions and different resources. I mean, if you're studying animal intelligence or animal creativity, you can't ask a creature what it's thinking. You have measurable outcomes. You, you, know, you can look at tool use and you can look at, you know, African gray parrots are, are capable of humor and of, of making up their own ideas, in a sense, by combining things. But, I mean, some dogs are smarter than others, but it's not like we can give a dog a standard IQ test. It's not like we can ask a dog, so how many different ideas can you think of for getting that bone? I mean, <laughs> we have to make a lot of leaps. It's, a lot of it is also this distinction between person and product. Mm. So if you ask me... Right, so this gets to the four P's of creativity? Yes. Um, yes, I guess that was going to be a question too. So Yes, so you, the, the four P's is, you know, person, product, process, and press. Press just means environment. Um, the creative process we look at in people, it's really hard to look at in animals, and it's really hard to look at in AI because technically that wouldn't really be a creative process. Mm. If we talk about products, though, I mean, I think Watson... Um, one of the latest, well, no, not quite so late. One of the more recent things is that Watson has been combining ingredients to create brand new recipes. Because it's been programmed in with every ingredient you can possibly imagine, which different ingredients would taste well together and which wouldn't. And based on it, it's been creating these complicated recipes that when they are cooked, yes, they're delicious and they haven't been made before. Mm. That's a creative product. Yeah. Wow. I don't know how you could argue it's not, you know. Um, is Watson creative? I mean, Watson had to be programmed by a bunch of really creative and really intelligent people. You take away the programming, there's no Watson. So why, so I understand obviously the product in that case is creative because it's kind of this new recipe that no one's ever thought of. Why wouldn't the process be creative? In that it's circumstance? Not, it's not that it wouldn't. It's that we have no insight into it. We have no insight into it, right? Because uh -huh. we can't just ask. We can't get that insight in the same way that we can with a human, where we can really like ask them, what process did you use? What tools did you use? Right. That type of thing. I mean, we can observe a person being creative. We will make them a little less creative, but if they get used to us, we can then just watch what they do. Mm -hmm. We can ask people to reflect on what they do. None of this is perfect, but we can tap into it. Um, we can do brain scans while they create and we'll see what's going on up there. You can't really ask a computer, how are you doing this? Because it's doing what, what you programmed it to do. Right. But, so I guess that could change if we were to create um, AIs that are capable of recursive self-improvement where they can change their programming and whatnot. And, and that's to me where we aren't yet. We might be eventually, but that 
self-aware, sentient. Like if you look at it varies so much by domain. Right. So you can look at AI-generated art. It looks pretty good. If you were to give me a hundred paintings generated by AI and a hundred generated by professional painters, I doubt I could tell the difference. Um, Writing-wise, we're not quite there yet. If you read stories or poems by AI, you can usually tell it's not quite... Um, human there easily could be a time when we won't be able to tell mm. when we think about for example an AI stand-up comedian <laughs> I mean we can use computers to distill what the funniest joke is which people have done um, wait well, how how in this case by public reaction where you have a, you have thousands of jokes programmed you just have Tons of people log on and just say, we're just funny, or this or that, this or that, this or that. Oh, okay. Um, we could have AI that understands some core concepts and swaps things out to create new jokes that aren't really that new. New the way that your 12-year-old will retell a joke. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, we're not at the point where AI could really take a step forward in comedy. Right. I'm not saying we, we won't be there, but that's the point when I would say, okay, you know, the AI is being creative and is this creative entity, not just it is producing creative things. Right, and with comedy, I feel like so much of that is about timing. So even if the AI system knew what the best jokes were, would it be able to deliver the correct timing in a way that's recognizably human. Like we need to develop systems that again are able to pass the touring test and are ostensibly indistinguishable from a human being or something. And then you think, but what makes the best stand-up comedian? Some of it is reading the room. Some of it is being able to improv on the fly. Yeah. Deal with he hecklers. Um, right. Making, turn the hecklers into a joke and all that. And, and making incredibly topical humor. I mean, a great stand-up comedian can go out and be able to take stuff that happened last night and do a whole routine about it. A great stand-up comedian can read the room and realize, okay, I'm making jokes that are like this, or I'm telling stories like this, and the room isn't appreciating it, and they can then take a step back and either be self-effacing or be take whatever attitude they want. Um, I mean, there's a bit that Seth Meyers does when a joke bombs, he'll have the writer explain the joke. And the point <laughs> is that it's funny by itself because the writer is usually looking kind of uncomfortable and that's part of the joke, why they thought it would be funny. And that's funny in its own right. That's genius. I didn't know he did that. It's yes. kind of brilliant. It is. Um, <laughs> so a related question here, and I didn't, if, I didn't mean to interrupt your train of thought. Um, a related question to the question of can AIs be creative is how do you measure creativity? Right? In order to answer that question, you need to know how to measure creativity. And this is a question that's kind of, uh, we've briefly touched upon or alluded to over the course of this conversation. But there, right, so there are different tests here. There's the divergent thinking test, the remote associates test, the consensual assessment technique. So and maybe this will be 
um, the final question. But I was wondering if you could just distinguish between different methods that have been proposed for how to actually measure this. Because it does seem, like as you note in the book, Sari Lansing, former CEO of Paramount, says, quote, you can evaluate grammar, punctuation, and spelling, but not creativity. And I think that is um, an intuitive thought that a lot of people will have. It's kind of an abstract phenomenon that you can't really quantitatively measure in any way. Unlike intelligence or something like that, maybe. And I mean, part of that fascinates me because if you think creativity cannot be measured, why would you think intelligence can? Because intelligence is just, if not more complex. Right. Um, but the most common way of testing for creativity is divergent thinking tests. Um, the Torn's tests of creative thinking are the most popular and best-selling of those and the best. This is when you ask an open-ended question. Um, you get many different responses. You can also do it visually where you give them a bunch of circles or an incompleted drawing. It's scored for fluency, which is just sheer output. So, and this actually is can overlap with some tests used for IQ. For IQ, it might be name as many flowers as you can or name as many words that start with B. Divergent thinking, it's more idea-based. So how many uses could you think of for a broken pencil? Or what would happen if everybody woke up tomorrow and they had a third arm? <laughs> and you would just be rattling off, you know, well, juggling would be easier and, you know, Shirt companies would have a field day, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and fluency is how many ideas can you think of that are still answering the question. So if you say, well, everybody developed a third arm, then James Taylor would be the best-selling musician. Well, why? That makes no sense. And this is where task appropriateness comes back in. Yes. Um, if you explain it. So you say, well, because James Taylor had this song three-armed man, I, I don't know, mm -hmm. he didn't, um, then, okay, well, then that becomes task appropriate. But if it's random, that's just... That's not creativity. You're just rattling off random thoughts. Right. Yeah. And that's... So, but fluency is kind of sheer output. Mm -hmm. Flexibility looks more at how many categories can you think of. So if I say, what are uses for a rock? And you say, well, you could use it to kill a squirrel. Okay, well, what else? Could have it as a pet. Yeah, and then that's a different category. <laughs> you could use it as a, as a home. Okay, that's a third category. But let's say instead, well, you could use it to kill a hamster. Okay, what else? You could use it to kill a person. Okay, what else? You could use it to kill a cockroach. Mm, and you went ahead and you did that for 10 minutes. You would be coming, you might come up with 90 ideas that would be scored for fluency because they're different ideas but it's all kind of the same category. Right. And so you might be high in fluency, but very low on flexibility. Right. Whereas somebody maybe has 15 ideas, but they're all notably different. So one is using it in a, as a sport. One is a, you know, to house something. One is a tool. One is a weapon. You know, and they're all different. Mm -hmm. um, that makes sense. The third one is originality. And that looks at how statistically uncommon is your answer? Hmm. Um, there are other ways of scoring for it. So sometimes people use judgments, but traditionally it's, okay, so you have, let's say you're 
using your own divergent thinking test and you've given it to 500 people and you code stuff based on, you know, what's alike and what isn't. And then you would list it from most common to least common. And, you know, you have this answer that 200 of the 500 said, that's not really uncommon at all. You have this answer that one person said, that's very, very uncommon and very original, assuming it's task appropriate. Right. Because that's what I was going to say. The James Taylor comment would be extremely uncommon, but it has to be task appropriate. Right. It's easy to be uncommon if it's not relevant. Right. Because, you know, if I were to say, you know, well, name colors to see how rare colors you could think of, and you said house or chair, well, okay, that's great, but nobody else will say that, but those aren't colors. Mm-hmm. It doesn't count. You know, whereas, you know, aquamarine or puce, whatever, okay, that at least is less common colors. Um, the visual ones, sometimes you look at a elaboration to the level of detail they put. Sometimes you look if they close off figures. So if you give an incomplete um, drawing, like a large squiggle, do people feel compelled to close it and make a closed circle, or are they willing to leave it open, which is related to ambiguity, being able to tolerate it? Mm. Um, <clears throat> the advantage of divergent thinking tests, there's by far the most research on them. They they are associated with other um, real-life creative behaviors often. Um, and they... They say something. It is meaningful information to have. It's not the only information you would want, though. So, um, if you were assessing somebody's creativity and you really wanted to understand it in a complex manner, divergent thinking is largely creative potential. It's thinking of ideas, it's not getting into the nuances like convergent thinking or implementation. It's also not getting into the idea of domains because you have verbal and visual, but somebody who is incredibly creative musically, they're not necessarily going to do terribly well on that. Mm-hmm. Remote associates test is theoretically a measure of associative thinking or convergent thinking, you're given three words that form an, a phrase or an idiom with a fourth word. So, for example, cottage, Swiss, cake. Mm-hmm. The word cheese goes with all of them. Cottage, cheese, Swiss cheese, cheesecake. Right, okay. Right. So this is the one that makes the assumption that creative people are more likely to make associations between remote concepts? Yes, the problem is that that's not really what it measures. It is possible to try to get at that concept by looking at different associations and stuff like that, but that would be treated the same way as if somebody wrote a short story. The advantage of the rat is that there's one correct answer, but that's also its biggest problem. And as well as the fact that it's so highly correlated with knowledge and intelligence and acculturization. So... If you are new to a culture or in language and you don't know the idioms, you're going to do terribly, and that has nothing to do with whether or not you're creative. If you have a poor vocabulary, you're not going to do very well. It's just more conceptual 
knowledge. You're going to be more likely to make connections between concepts. Right. And and not knowing phrases doesn't even... That's its own little thing. Right. And it gets dated really quickly. Like, if you're using items that went from, when it, the, from the original test, people don't really use those expressions anymore. Even when it's, <laughs> people have done variants of it that have been more recent, which are much better... Even that, if it's seven years old, some of these expressions go out of style. The divergent uh, thinking one just seems more multifaceted and... Yeah. Right? Um, more dimensions. If I'm comparing divergent thinking and, rem- and the remote associates test, I choose divergent thinking every time. Right. Um, so what about the consensual assessment technique? This one's pretty simple. This one's just you consult experts, have them observe someone doing something creative and then give their opinion on it? Or is it more complicated than that? It's a little different in that you would get a bunch of finished products of something. Let's say poems. You would then get a team of people who had enough expertise in an area. Ideally, you'd want like published poets for poetry, but what a lot of research has found is that an eighth grade English teacher also does pretty well, or a graduate student in poetry, or an editor of a magazine. You know, so you mm. don't, it's different levels of expertise. Right, uh, so this gets at the question, which, just what counts as an expert? Who's an expert? Who's qualified to say what's creative and what's not creative? And, and that's an enormous question. I mean, usually the lower the expertise, the more people you need. It just it doesn't work for novices. Mm-hmm. Novices tend to not agree with experts or quasi-experts. <laughs> but you would send every expert, every all the all the poems, and they would not talk to each other or consult each other. They would do it alone, and they would read the poems, and then they would begin assigning scores based on their own view of creativity. This was developed by Teresa Amable. Uh, one of the giants in the field. And the fascinating thing is that experts agree at an astoundingly high rate. It doesn't mean they agree on every one. But they agree to a much higher level than anybody would think. Mm. That if you have five or six real experts or a few of maybe 12 quasi-experts like graduate students... Um, not to disparage graduate students, they're <laughs> wonderful, um, that if they are going through stuff on their own without any consultation, they will still be able to separate, you know, this is a poem, these are the poems that are really creative, these are kind of creative, these are really not very creative. The agreement is incredibly high. Um, the thing that I love about this is that it's the closest to capturing actual creativity. Even more so than the divergent thinking? The divergent thinking test is still largely an artificial construct. Okay. It's, and again, it's the best instrument that we have right now that is capable of being used for thousands and thousands of people. Um, But with the consensual assessment technique, you can measure any domain you want. 
Theoretically, you could measure 10 domains. That would be a pain in the ass, but instead of assuming that creativity is basically domain general, you would get this profile of strengths and weaknesses. You know, and have somebody, you know, do a writing task, a drawing task, a science task, a math task, a business task, a music task, uh, etc. Right. And you could then be looking at their actual creative work um, and really highlighting what is recognized as being creative by people who should know and what is recognized as being less creative. Right. The problem is that this is a humongous pain in the ass. I mean, even if you have 30 people, um, getting three or four experts to read 30 poems and rate them, people don't like doing that usually. Right, people are just busy. They have other things they're doing. Busy, and it's it's often... It, it, it can be fun. It can be really not fun, depending on what it is. Right. Um, and it's usually hundreds of people. Right. And... The prospect of, oh, I get to read 6,000 sentence captions is just not something that inspires great joy. <laughs> um, but it might be worth it if it is the best at capturing creativity out of the given tests that are available. And, it, and it's, it's definitely a technique as opposed to a test in that it's not like a here is the consensual assessment technique test. Right. I think it makes a lot of sense for college admissions because you already have admissions officers who are reading through things and personal essays and that is a recommendation. Mm. You usually have at least two. If they were to look at an enclosed portfolio, they could also make judgments. Right. It's already part of their job to kind of do that. So why not just say, okay, assess it along the lines of creativity as well while you're at it. And I mean... It boils down to money, <laughs> but um, it's, I think it's doable. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of people, including often my students at the end of a semester, you know, will, will say something like, well, it's just opinion-based, it's just subjective. Well, yes, but an awful lot of measurement of creativity is subjective. And like you said, the experts, by and large, tend to agree. Right. Yeah. Okay, so last question. Um, does creativity peak at a particular time in life? And I, if I remember correctly, it, it's going it, to be relevant to the domain as well, right? Yes. So there's some talk of like a fourth grade slump where children are created up to a certain point and then they start stagnating or even going down. Whether it's fourth grade or sixth grade, studies differ. The extent of it differs. In general, there's a certain point when school becomes focused on standardized tests and rules and kids tend to have less opportunity to flex their creative muscles. Mm. As one gets older, hopefully, you know, one... Um, rediscovers creativity or has never lost it and then different careers have different trajectories and peaks so there are some areas where if you haven't done something by the time that you're 25 you're not going to do something um, isn't poetry one of those poetry is one of them 
theoretical physics. I gotta get writing poems. Clock's ticking. <laughs> theoretical physics and theoretical mathematics. Those are the. And again, it doesn't mean you have to have your brilliant idea. It right. just means you have to have reached a publication level. Okay. Um, and I mean, within expertise in learning, we see stuff like this. I mean, it is so much easier to learn a foreign language when you're eight than when you're 40. Right. So much easier. Same with music often. Um, most areas peak in their 30s or 40s. Um, usually harder sciences, more 30s. Um, things that are more writing or cumulative, like history, 40s, history, I think even the 50s. A lot of this is work by Dean Keith Simonton. Hmm. Um, it's important to remember these are still averages. There's always outliers. And there's a difference between peaking and continuing to be productive. Right. So, I mean... Bruce Springsteen, you could argue, peaked in the 80s when he had Born in the USA and um, Glory Days and the his ones biggest that hits. most, yeah, his biggest hits. But he's been steadily producing music and generally pretty good music if you like that kind of music all the way up until present day. So, yeah, maybe he peaked in the 80s, but it's not like it's this one little mountain high peak and then everything else is at ground level. So, I don't really listen to Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen, but is the quality of his music <clears throat> that he produced after the 80s at the same level, but people just kind of got used to it and it's not as new anymore, so therefore it's not as popular? Or is it not as good as the stuff in the 80s, even though it still is pretty objectively good? Does that make sense? It makes sense. I'm trying to think if I know enough to answer. Um, right, okay, but, you know, the general question would be a lot of times, like, something, someone comes out with a huge splash of originality and then they keep doing that original thing but it's not original anymore I mean, because he, people are numb to it changes things up a bit though because he will go into folk he's gone into different styles um and he still even had some decent hits just nothing at that same level um i mean michael jackson's thriller album Mm -hmm. was his peak mm -hmm. he was still recording music until he died right um, one of my favorites is Bob Dylan and he's someone who just constantly reinvented and continues to reinvent himself even though his peak I guess was arguably in the 60s yeah uh, and he, he's it was funny he was actually one of the when I was trying to find an example um, and he's an interesting one because his top peak was indeed in the 60s. He's come probably pretty close to that a number of times. Mm. Um, and he's always producing stuff. Yeah. He's amazing. I mean, there are the people who, I mean, the same way there are the one-hit wonders, you know, who, oh, yeah, they had one song and then nothing else. Right. You have the people who had one hit and recorded a lot of other stuff that just wasn't as good. And then you have the people who, yeah, they had this peak, but their general output wasn't that much lower than it on a regular basis. And, uh, and then I feel like there's some other artists who they'll make it big with a particular kind of music, and then they're like, oh, okay, people like this, I'm just going to keep 
doing this particular kind of thing because I know it works. I respect artists who are like Bob Dylan, who are not afraid to fail and try to reinvent themselves and do something new and try a new style, you know. Of course, the flip side of that is that some of the artists who seem to have fallen off the map, it's because they tried something new right. and the studio <laughs> yeah. didn't even bother releasing it. Yeah, they're like, no, sorry. Um, I mean, there are so many examples. I'm trying to even just beyond. But it's like you said, you can't be afraid of failure, right? If you're trying to be creative. You can't be afraid of failure, but you also got to make sure the risks you're taking make sense. Right. There's risk taking for the sake of taking risks, and there's risk take there's risk taking when you've measured the different possible outcomes and it's worth it. Calculated risk. Yeah. I mean, it's a risk to, to jump off a building. But if you're doing it for the hell of it, that's not really a sensible risk. <laughs> hey, it's risk and failure, look how creative that is. <laughs> right. I mean I mean Let's say that we think about Stephen King, superstar writer. There are many ways that he might risk failure. Mm. One might be he writes um, something that's pure literary fiction. There's no horror element at all. Mm. That's a pretty good risk to take if it's a good work. He might try his hand exploring a different genre. Maybe he's going to try science fiction. He's kind of done that. But, you know, more traditional sci-fi fantasy. I mean, I'd be curious as hell to see what he does. Mm. But there would also be risks, like if he decided um, to write the most sexist book he could imagine. That's a stupid risk, and it would not produce very likely a great work. It would it would be a risk, but it's not the kind of risk that makes you more creative. Right. Um, and a lot of times, it's uh, the most prudent thing is to know what domain you're good at being creative in, right? Because as you say, a lot of times you can make the mistake where thinking creativity is just this general thing. So if I'm creative in this domain, I'm necessarily a creative person. That means I'm going to be, cre be creative in this domain too. Might not necessarily be the case, right? In fact, one of my favorite examples of that is a guy named William Shockley. He invented the transistor radio. He won a Nobel Prize for that he decided to play with intelligence. He was not an intelligence expert by any means. But he got into it, and he then um, was behind developing a genius sperm bank repository and offering people with an IQ below a certain point, um, offering them money in order for them getting sterilized, which is pretty <sighs> damn Nazi-ish. Yeah. And Jeez. today... I mean, that's a, almost like eugenics. That is eugenics. That's eugenics, no, right? That's yeah. pure eugenics. Yeah, right. And so today you have, in some fields, he's remembered for inventing the transistor radio. In other fields, or populations of people, they know him primarily as being that complete jerk who yeah. wanted to start the biggest eugenics movement you can imagine in America. Right. And there is that line between knowing, okay, I'm going to take a risk and try something new versus, well, I know I'm really established in this area and I'm going to assume that I don't even need to consult people when I go to this other area, mm -hmm. which is usually not true. Mm -hmm. um, 
I feel like we do that all the time, just with respect to politicians, for example. You know, we are just we think someone that we know is credible in a given domain. They start voicing their opinion on some other topic, and we just take it as fact because we trust them, even though they're not a cognitive expert on that topic. And most of us don't do the background research. So there are some times when celebrities will speak out, and they actually have qualifications. There was a musician, I wish I could remember who it was, who had posted something, and somebody said, well, you, you know, what do you know about politics? He's like, well, I, I got my degree in political science from Harvard. Right. He's allowed to speak about, you know, I mean, anybody's allowed to speak, but his opinion actually has some weight. But we don't know some, you know, when Leonardo DiCaprio weighs in on something, who knows what his background research has been, if any. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's been extensive, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many areas that are misrepresented and that people know a little bit. And, I mean, the anti-vaxxers is probably a great example where, you know, there's no evidence that vaccines are bad. There's extensive evidence that not getting a vaccine is terrible for the child and for the community and for other people and on so many levels. When the doctor first did that one now retracted study, people didn't really jump on the bandwagon. It was when celebrities began endorsing it that people began really? not vac- particularly Jenny McCartney, not vaccinating their kids. And this is so. This is the study that links autism and vaccinations, which right? was retracted. Right, which is retracted and found to be completely not true. Wow, everything's based on that. Um. I mean, this is more controversial, but there is a movie called um, Blackfish about marine mammals in captivity. Oh, I think I saw it. A lot of people saw it. A lot of people protested against SeaWorld and other zoos and aquariums. Yeah, no, I did see it, as a matter of fact, yeah. My wife does zoo and aquarium work, so I know a lot of the full story. I know the different techniques they did in the documentary of mislabeling locations giving false information, primarily interviewing people who had been fired from a place and then talking bad about it. Right, so just for, for people who haven't seen this documentary, it's about killer, it's about, what's it called, SeaWorld, and just the mistreatment of killer whales, and it's really a documentary suggesting that this needs to stop immediately, these animals don't belong in captivity, they're treated cruelly in tanks that are very small where they're left alone and you come out of it just thinking this is completely immoral how could we continue to do this and sleep at night essentially the ultimate irony is that a lot of what they base their movie on is the death of an animal trainer yeah and her family has have been passionately talking about how she devoted her life to this towards the education of people towards research this is the opposite of what she would have wanted. Right. Um, she loved the animals? She loved the animals. She would. Have, she still loved the animals. Accidents happen. Accidents happen all the time. I mean, the number of people who get killed in car crashes were not banning cars. Yeah. Um, and that... That's a good point. 
so much of the, oh, well, we should release them. In general, when you release them, they're dead within a day. Just because they're not accustomed to living on their own and surviving on their own in the wilderness? And that many of the animals in zoos and aquariums are there because they were rescues. Mm. That, and they were rehabilitated and then they couldn't be released. Where they were found, you know, their mother had abandoned them or they have an injury and so they were rehabilitated and weren't able to go back. This doesn't mean that there are places where animals aren't mistreated, but it's pretty damn rare. Working in a zoo or aquarium is incredibly low-paying, competitive to get a job, and an amazing amount of hard work. The idea that anybody would really devote their entire lives getting almost no money and putting almost all their time into something so they could mistreat the thing they love is bizarre. Yeah. Um, I haven't thought about it like that. So how is that documentary completely inaccurate? Because I was one of the people who watched it knowing nothing else about SeaWorld and how they operate, coming out of it thinking, oh, this is a bad thing. We should stop this. Is it completely a hit job kind of? Or is it- I mean, it was a propaganda piece. Um, SeaWorld took a passive response, assuming it would blow over, and that didn't happen. Um they did not handle it well. It It's very easy to make a documentary about any topic to convince people of something. Yeah. I mean, if you look at PETA, a lot of the stuff they... I mean, PETA is pro-euthanasia. This is the animal rights organization? Yes, um, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Um, they kill thousands of animals a year. Why? For what? Honestly, I don't really understand a damn thing they do. They believe that people shouldn't have pets. So all these people who love animals and are donating money because they love their dog, well, PETA thinks you shouldn't have that dog. Wait, hold on a sec. But don't, didn't dogs like almost essentially co-evolve with humans? Mm-hmm. And, a, and a lot, like, so there's like an, an evolutionary bond there. It's almost like a symbiotic yep. relationship. Yep. That doesn't seem to make sense. A lot <laughs> of stuff about PETA doesn't make sense. Um, it's an example of a really good PR and people confusing them with other groups that are good. I mean... It's the same way what the exact name is. Um, yeah. Like, you might have two journals, one called the Journal of Cancer Research and one the Cancer Research Journal. One of them is a top journal in the world. The other one is a predatory paid journal where anybody can publish it. Mm-hmm. How do you tell the difference? Well, you have to know the field. And if you don't know the field, they look equally credible just based exactly. on the name. If you have two charities, one is the National Humane Society, one is the American Humane Society, and I'm making that one up, I mean, some of these charities are amazing and some are not and don't use the money in good ways. I feel like just in the modern world that we're living in, all of these problems with are just being amplified in this 
fake news era with all these epistemic bubbles, you know, whether it's the anti-vax thing, you just go down a rabbit hole on YouTube and suddenly you become convinced that it's true, or whether it's the mainstream media misrepresenting scientific findings because they're sensationalistic and they think they'll get clicks. Um, yeah, or whether it's just some illegitimate organization that's able to brand themselves and knows how to advertise themselves on social media. I feel like all of, all of this kind of shattering of social epistemology is just so much more salient and so much more of a problem in this new information age that we live in. And I know we can we can end soon. I know we're getting off creativity, but I mean it's 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 funny because on one hand you go back eighty years or a hundred years and you know there was no USDA. The meat that you get could be anything. That's crazy. There were no rules or regulations for safety. So you could you know you know, the famous thing is Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which, you know, his point was look at how badly people are treated, but people read it and said, oh my God, there could be a human being in my sausage and got freaked out about that. I mean, I still will maintain, I think things are generally better today, that too much information is better than not enough. Mm. But it is always possible to exploit other people who don't know enough to make an educated decision. And I mean, that includes me. I mean, I know a lot about a few very small things. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of other stuff where I, you know, I would, I would also go by the documentary I see or whatever. I mean, I try to not get too attached to positions where I know I don't know very much. Yeah. But it's not like I'm above that. I mean, my wife and I edited a book on pseudoscience. I'm sure I still consume pseudoscience without realizing it. Right. Um, and I feel like there's just so much pressure to have an opinion on everything. You know, are you for this or are you against this? There's so much pressure to have a stance. And I don't know, all of it becomes tribal pretty quickly. And it's become so dichotomized. Yeah. You for so the wall, you against the wall. <laughs> Or whatever it is, you know. And it's sad because, like, I mean, in my childhood, yes, of course, there were differences and all this stuff. But you had people working across party lines. You had people who were still fundamentally human beings. Yeah. And who, even if they disagreed, often there could be a compromise or this or that. And I'm not saying it was always better back then or anything. I'm not saying it. But it wasn't so... Regimented, it wasn't so friend or enemy. So, okay, so you think things have, are more polarized now than they've ever been in your lifetime, at least in America? Because a lot of times. In my I, lifetime in America. In your lifetime in America. Because a lot of times I'll say that and they're like, oh, well, every young person always thinks it's the end of the world. That's just you being a young person. I'm not saying I think it's worse, but I think it's more polarized. Yeah. Yeah, part of the problem is that, like, there doesn't even seem to be like a common set of facts. It's not like, okay, here are the facts. We have different interpretations. Let's argue it out. No, there's just, we don't even agree on the facts because, um, you know, there are so many different media outlets that are just, each one's partisan. So, I, And we surround ourselves with things we want to surround ourselves with. Um, it's harder to have an honest intellectual debate that doesn't get emotional. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if it's about politics.
or anything related to politics. Um, and again, does this mean that right now the world is worse than it was 20 years ago? No. Um, That's another thing. That's, that's been happening. I feel like there's so many people, part of my generation, who just have this nihilistic attitude about the world. Things are as bad now as they've ever been. We need to throw out the whole system. And I'm like, wait, hold on, wait a second. You know, I read Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels, Better Angels of Our Nature, and um, the one you just came out with. But he details like. You can measure well-being in so many different ways along all these different ways to measure it. Well-being, by and large, throughout the world, even in the poorest countries, has increased. Like, almost everyone has it better than their grandparents had it. You know, we have these miraculous devices that can connect us to the world. And I'm not saying there aren't people who are living in poverty and they're not issues that we still need to solve. Of course there are. But I feel like, yeah, just by and large, things are better now. And it is, I think, the best time to be alive in human history statistically speaking, but then, again, so many of my contemporaries are just like, you know, we need to throw everything out, everything's bad. I get that sense from people, and I just don't really agree. And certainly I feel like if anybody were to be magically transported 100 years ago, it would not be better. No, it would be hell. Be, uh, I mean, not, you know, but uh, comparatively. I mean... We don't know how good we have it. Or with several hundred years ago? I mean, you know, people might have ten kids and have one survive to adulthood. Right. It just was a different metric of what life satisfaction was. I mean, the idea of leisure time is a relatively modern invention. <laughs> yeah, that just wasn't a thing. Like, it wasn't even a concept in people's heads. I mean, Lord knows there's still so far to go. Right. And there are some ways in which I think, yes, some things are getting worse. But at a global perspective, I'm perpetually optimistic. And even as bad as things are, I do not think that they are worse than they've been. But I guess the potential danger, per perhaps, of thinking along those lines is to think that history kind of, like, there's this necessary force to history that's congregating towards the good, whereas that might not necessarily be the case. You know, it could be that we've been living in this time of relative prosper prosperity without realizing how fundamentally unstable civilization is. I mean, civilizations that have been dominant throughout the world that have lasted longer than the United States have collapsed. So... I feel like you can fall into that trap of thinking, oh, well, things are necessarily going to keep getting better as they have, so we're all good. Whereas, like, wait, hold on a sec. That's not necessarily true. Things can go horribly away. Right. I mean, being completely naively optimistic, I mean, things are not inherently going to keep getting better or inherently, you know, that involves struggle and fighting and being active and... Um, alert, you know, I think things easily could get worse, you know. I think that in many ways things have gotten worse um, across time, you know. I think there is no entitlement of things getting better. Right. Um, 
I tend not to be pessimistic. I tend to think things will generally work out when you look at it from a broader perspective. But that also doesn't mean I don't recognize the amazing inequities and bad things that are happening right now. Right. It's just I think they were even worse 100 years ago. Well, on that note, um, (laughs) thank you for your time. I know that we've uh, completely gone past it, but I appreciate it. You bet. No, this is fun. It was a pleasure talking.